Hey everybody, welcome. This is Yochaved. Thank you so much for listening. You are about to hear an incredible conversation that I had with my great aunt, Rebetzin Fagy Tversky. And this was so much fun for me on so many levels, hearing just the wisdom and the practical common sense, which maybe those are sort of the same thing that she has to offer just in general for this time of year specifically, um, was so much fun for me. And also, I mean, Rebetzin Feige is my great aunt, which means when I grew up, she was always the sort of older figure in our family. And I saw her at Simchas and, you know, casual conversation here and there at events and family things. And Baruch Hashem, like most people, the family's grown and it's got bigger and we're not always all at the same events, you know, anymore. Um, but this, this podcast was an opportunity for me to actually sit and have a, a conversation with her, a deep conversation, which was incredible. So I'm grateful to the podcast for having this opportunity and, of course, grateful that I get to share it with all of you. And I hope that you enjoy it um, as much as I did. And I have to say that um, Robertson Fagy was just such a champ because a few times while we were recording, we were doing it via Zoom, and the Zoom cut out. And I was like, oh no, shoot, what happened? Auntie Feige, I lost you, what's going on? And then I had to call her back and start it again. And then afterwards in editing, I pieced all the pieces together. Um, so I hope, you know, I hope you can't hear the transitions. I hope we did it seamlessly. But if you do hear a little bit of a transition here and there, that's why. But um, we totally made it work and we were able to have this great conversation that I could present to you that's both timely as far as L and Tishrei, but just in general, it's timeless, I guess, timeless wisdom. So, um, Let's get into the episode, but before that, of course, um, if you want to reach me, you can email me at a deeper conversation one two zero at gmail.com. Consider maybe sponsoring the podcast or advertising or becoming a monthly supporter. Even five dollars a month really helps to keep the podcast going. And I appreciate everybody who has reached out to me and given me feedback and supported the podcast because um, it is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of time and effort and of course resources to get it out. So if you feel like you're getting value. Um, and you want to see it continue, then consider supporting what you could do either again by emailing me at that email address, deeperconversation120 at gmail.com, or you can go to maverickpodcasting.com and click on the link to my page. You could donate once there or become a monthly supporter. Um, and then I think even through Spotify, there's a you know an option there for donation. So you can do that there also. And of course, that email address is one that you can reach me for comments and feedback and questions. Follow the podcast at on Instagram at A Deeper Conversation. But really, without further ado, let's get into this amazing podcast. And also, yes, you're, if you're listening to this before Rosh Hashanah, wishing you a kasiva v'chazimatova. This is A Deeper Conversation, the podcast for Jewish women. Welcome. Hi, Auntie Feige. Welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Nice to be with you, my darling niece. Thank you so much. Um, so, okay, I'm going to just jump right into it. So probably everybody who listens to this already knows your name, has probably read some of your work and knows who you are. But, and I have to say, I speak also for myself. I don't really know that much about your childhood and how you grew up and where you grew up. So can you please share with us a little bit about your background? Okay, um, I was born in Romania um, during during the war, and um, my father was in a labor camp, and I was born while he was in a labor camp in a, a cellar. The Nazis Yimachshamam had taken away our home. My father was the city of Altichan. It was the rabbi of the city of Altichan, and we found ourselves. My father went off to labor camp. We were, my mother was in a cellar, and. 
um, when she gave birth, it turned out that I was a breech baby. And um, my mother was at great risk. And the woman who was hiding my mother in her home tried uh, knew that she she couldn't get a doctor because any doctor that helped a Jewish woman give birth was summarily executed. So uh, finally she offered some, uh, some doctor somewhere or everything she owned to come and help my mother give birth. So, so here I am. Anyway, um, my father was one of the fortunate ones who came back from the labor camp and then he started making he made preparations for us to leave Romania there there was um, um, myself and my and my older brother and um, uh, we tried to go to Israel we got to the the shores of Israel and the British were in charge and they said they had enough Jews they didn't want us they turned the boat around we asked them where we should go, and they said it's not their problem. We ended up trying to go to Greece, and then eventually ended up in Italy. So we were in a refugee camp for a year and a half. In, How uh, old were Italy. you at this point? At this point, I was like uh, three years old. Three Do you have any old. memories of it? I, I have memories. Now, do I know if they're valid? I don't know. They say memories are kind of things like you make up and you put them in your head. I don't right. know, but I, I, but I, 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 I think I, I remember. I think I remember Italy, and um, I remember a, a number of. Um, my mother told me a few things that happened during the time. She's, she said that somebody came over to me and said to me, "You poor darling." Uh, traveling from place to place with no place, uh, the, no space to call home, and I, I said to him, "You're you're you're mistaken. I have a home. I just don't have a house to put it into." So uh, you know, so that she told me, you know, a, a number of things that uh, she was very proud of my responses. But eventually, we got papers after a year and a half, and we came to America. I, and I still remember seeing the Statue of Liberty. It was such an exciting sight. And, um, you know, the, the land of freedom. And uh, we wouldn't have to be looking over our shoulders to see who was pursuing us the way we had lived uh, back in, in Europe. And all the things we take for granted today, you know, a room heated by steam, and all kinds of one, just all the amazing things that uh, we uh, re, uh, I really uh, appreciated. And my father um, became Robin Bensonhurst, and that's where we he stayed till till he was nifter, and um, so that was my odyssey, you know. What what was it like in America when you came as far as growing up, like schools and what was the community like in in Bensonhurst there, Hasidish, not Hasidish? Yeah. Was it? No, it was it was pretty much secular. Mm -hmm. uh, all the all our neighbors were secular. There was the, my father's shoe, and uh, and those people were also a mixture. They were they weren't specifically Hasidish, mm -hmm. but uh, all of them were were from. But it was very limited. Um, Beis HaTalma, the yeshiva that's there now, wasn't in existence as yet at the time. But mm -hmm. I had friends, my friend, I have very good friends, my neighbors, and they were Jewish, but uh, they weren't from at all. But 
you know, we um, we found uh, things in common and we enjoyed each other's company. I went to Basiaco in Brighton at the beginning. That was the closest Basiaco. And then I went to Borough Park and I went to eventually to seminary in Williamsburg, Basiaco Seminary. And um and and they were they were very very nice years. We got along. My my father was even though he was a Hasidic Arab, he always loved all different types of people. He wasn't put off by people who weren't uh, who weren't so firm. He'd come to Milwaukee eventually when we got married, and and he loved all the people here. Even though he always spoke only Yiddish and they spoke only English, they understood each other totally and completely. They had the it, um, it's called it's still the language of the heart so uh, so yeah he he came in summers he went eventually to Tannersville to the Yekusha community and he was friends with Rabbi Breuer's and they got along famously it, uh, he just loved all different types of people he didn't have offers to move to Williamsburg where it would be totally Hasidish and he declined all those offers he didn't want to be in a place where it was one type of a person he he liked the mixture of, of all kinds he relished that he loved people is that model something that you like spurred you or like made it easy for you to move to Milwaukee, like having that background and not being like in such a insular community. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, um, if you would have seen my father, you would have thought that it couldn't be, uh, you know, he was regular garb and, you know, uh, a regular Rebbe, Rebbe look, mm -hmm. but uh, he was extremely, extremely broad minded. And, um, and he learned, you know, made me that was my, my father. So, um, so yes, it was, and, and I met, uh, of course, I met my husband who was born and bred in Milwaukee up to the time he went away to Yeshiva. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, yes, I, I, I guess that did help a lot because we didn't have much of a community when we moved to Milwaukee, but we had to build a community and we had to draw from people who were, um, uh, who were, who were very secular. And, and, uh, and when we extended what I saw by my parents and by uh, my in-laws that um, we did base a relationship on, on their you know, their affiliation. It was more like you look to them as human beings and eventually you find out when you interact with people that every person, no matter where they come from, has something to teach us. So it wasn't us and them. It wasn't mm -hmm. us uh, high and mighty looking down at the, uh, those poor people. They, they were, we were on, on equal foot, footing and we loved them for who they were. And that Zaydam from Milwaukee, also personified that somebody there was a, a fellow who came who had heard how beloved Zayda from Milwaukee was he came to try to figure out what his secret was and he came and he said to him um you know Rebbe what is it why do people love you so much and Zayda said because I love Jews and the fellow said oh so that's the secret and he started walking away and Zayda called them back and he understood that this fellow thought he had just been informed about a technique. And mm -hmm. he said to the fellow, you don't understand. I really love Jews. Mm 
I really love juice. And, uh, and, and that really was, uh, it's a most important ingredient in being able to reach people is to really love them, not have an agenda of I'm going to convert you and I'm going to make you become from, um, or I'm going to uh, um, let you know what your opinions should be. Not, and no agendas, but just accepting people for and loving people for who they are. That's so beautiful. I, I, I guess I wonder, going back um, all those years, moving to Milwaukee. Well, first of all, how old were you when you moved to Milwaukee? And what was it like for you in those early years, like raising your family there, raising from kids in, you know, in an area? I mean, when you're talking about like after the war, you don't have that many choices. You come to America, you kind of go where you can go. And there's not so many options. But already when you were raising your kids, like you could have gone to Brooklyn or you could have like looked around and said like what kind of yeshivas are here so what was it like for you back then with little kids in Milwaukee well, it, it was it was really a midbar at the time there was nothing here nothing at all um I was uh I was not when I got married I was not quite 18 I wasn't 18 yet wow. and but I was really extremely invested in my husband and I would have gone anywhere with him so we came uh, first we were in Denver actually by uh, by yours, Ada, uh, for we spent I don't know probably about a year there, and your grandfather was teaching my husband Shrita in his Schlachthaza, so we spent some time there. When we came to Milwaukee, um, it, we had very few. I mean, from families you can count on on one hand, and um, and our children, um, we there was a a day school here of a reform, conservative, and um, orthodox kids all in one. And the interesting thing was that, for, of course, you have to know that the world was different then. Mm -hmm. The world was same. Even people who weren't from people who, even public schools were different. Today, the world has gone totally crazy. And we we couldn't have done what we did then. We couldn't do it in, in, in the environment that we have today. So our kids went to school with kids who came from totally secular homes and they formed such wonderful friendships because at the time even though these people knew from nothing and had no Yiddish guy to speak of they respected Yiddish they respected our children were were their role models they looked up to them and they understood that our children would never go to their homes but they came and spent Shabbos with us and those relationships they have our kids have to this very day, and they relish them. They're still good friends, even though many of them have still not become firm. But it, it it didn't really matter. They just they just were friends, and those friends, friends of of one's youth, are really important friendships. Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't I mean uh, it wasn't easy. And the things that they, my kids they came home and they were on the bus. They traveled for on a bus for half an hour to get home. And um, they and of course, some of those kids came from homes that were broken and some had quite a few sets of grandparents. And when they started talking about it at the dinner table and started telling me some things they heard on the bus, another one of my kids would kick them under the table and say, you can't talk about such things in front of mommy. She doesn't know about these things. <laughs> <laughs> so they were protecting me all along, uh -huh. but but they are certainly none the worse off for any of those experiences. 
Uh, so when I was talking to my mother and I said, I'm, I'm going to do this podcast with Auntie Faggy, what should I ask her? So she said, you know, when I was younger, I used to go to Milwaukee in the summers and I would help Auntie Faggy with the kids. I guess my mother um, was a, probably a teenager, maybe when you were had a bunch of little kids. And so she viewed you right. then, like a young mother with a bunch of little kids and she was babysitting. And she said she wasn't even a public figure then. That happened much later. When did you start? speaking publicly and becoming more well-known and going out there and giving speeches? Because like now you have a bunch of, first of all, a lot of technological ways that women can put themselves out there, but it probably was not very common to have a Rebbitzin, certainly not a Hasidish Rebbitzin, going out, speaking to mixed audiences, secular audiences. When did that start? How did that start? And, and I don't, yeah, tell me about that. Well, I didn't really have any intentions of doing any of these things. What happened was that um, I wanted to reach out to my to uh, my own community here in Milwaukee. People uh, on all on, on different sides of town. I was trying to think. One of my chaver here that I reached out to said to me, "You know, it would be really nice if you had a study group." So I started out um, very modestly with a group at the Jewish Community Center, which was neutral ground, and people would feel comfortable. It wasn't a shul. They wouldn't feel like they're going to be, uh, you know, converted. So they they came to the Jewish Community Center. And um, eventually I was invited to speak to the um, leadership group at the Federation here. Uh, again, a very secular group. And uh, I, I remember those women, I could tell right away they were extremely intelligent. And they were very accomplished. And they were sitting on the floor. And with their torn jeans, you know, the jeans that are so uh, you know, popular, and uh, with their legs crossed. And I, at some point, I thought I was probably talking Greek to them. But anyways, when I they wanted me to talk about a neutral subject, the holidays, Jewish holidays. But when I looked at these women, I said, nah, I'm not talking to them about Jewish holidays. I'm going to tell them what I want to tell them. And if I don't ever get uh, invited back, so be it. So I started telling, I said to them, you know, I could see that you're so highly intelligent. And I want to ask you, like, what's the difference between um, us human beings and a subhuman species? And they started saying, well, a brain, we have brains. I said, that's not really, because they're very intelligent animals as well. And they fumbled around until they came up with the word spirit or soul. So I said, okay, so now that you've identified that, you know, the kuda of it being a soul, let me ask you something. Um, how, how much do our, how long do our bodies last? How long do we live on this earth? He said, yeah, you know, up, up to 120 years. So I said, okay, up to 20, so that's our body. Our, our physical being. Now tell me, what about this soul that you will identify as the essence of our being? How long, how long will that last? So they said, well, it's eternal, it's forever. So I said to them, okay. So now let me ask you the next question. Next question is, how much attention have you given your physical being? You know, um, you make, have, you pride yourself, you look in the mirror and you pride yourself with having made educated decisions. So when you decide on a career, you researched everything and to make sure it's the career that will work for you. When even when you buy a dress, when you buy a dress, you go, you want to make sure that you got a good deal. 
so and then you can look at yourself in, in the mirror and say, oh, that, that was an educated decision. I said, so let me ask you, so what about, that's your material, material stuff, physical stuff that lasts a short time uh, to be eventually buried and never to be heard from again. Now your soul that you claim is forever. How much attention, what kind of educated being can you really look in the mirror and say to yourself, I'm part of myself. I made an educated decision as far as my soul is concerned. Have you researched anything about your soul? Have you studied? Have you looked into the heritage, your legitimate heritage? Can you honestly look in the mirror and say you made an educated decision? Anyway, I shook them up. And after the after the meeting, they came over and said, okay, you convinced us. What we want to do, we want to study. How can we do this? So we started a, a study group. And uh, we I started with pre-K others. That was non-threatening. And after a while, they they said to me, it's all very cogent, makes sense. What are we going to do with our husbands? So we uh, con uh, conspired and we uh, organized a meeting in the Jewish Community Center, a luncheon meeting, and they were going to invite their husbands. And I was going to have my husband there as well. So uh, Uncle Michael is sitting there at the head table and these guys walk in. They take one look at him with his beard and pace and his garb and they shoot looks at their wives that said, uh, wait till we get home, wait till we get home. In any case, he cracked a joke about the Milwaukee Brewers, a baseball team. He broke the ice and eventually we, uh, we started meeting on a monthly basis. And from that group, I, that was the beginning of our community in Milwaukee. They started uh, slowly. They learned. They began to keep Shabbos and Kashrus. And then they they moved from the wealthier side of town to our side of town. They sent their children to day school. And uh, that's and today these Chavra have children and grandchildren who are uh, heads of Kololim, who are Rashi Yeshivas, who have their own cure of movements. And it, it's such a, a nachas to behold these people. And these are the found, the founders of our, our community. So um, so it was really, and again, the whole thing, I think the basis of outreach and teaching is to make sure that we don't have an attitude of them and us. Mm. Not word that we're any better. I always tell them, I say, you think that I inspired you? I want to tell you something. You guys are really the ones who inspired me because truthfully, if I came from where you came from, I don't know if I could have done what, what you did. Mm -hmm. I mean, they gave up They gave up friends. They gave up a, a lifestyle. They gave everything up to become from. And it's it's unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. That's so much nachas for you. But what was it like you know, be, you know, speaking publicly, coming from your background, did you ever get any pushback or, you know, just going around and being yeah, more- I'll tell you what, it's a, very, it's a very good question. I uh, When I went out of town, first it was, I did work only here in Milwaukee. Eventually when I was invited, we would start out like a, a neighboring city like Chicago. I would never go to speak in Chicago um, without consulting the Rob, the Murad Asra of the community. 
So when they asked me to be on a panel on marriage and it would be a uh, it would be men and women together, or there would be other male speakers. Mm-hmm. I called, uh, I called the rub of the community, and I said to them, "Is this okay? Is this okay with you? I understand the objective here. I know that it's a powerful statement, especially in those days when it it wasn't so acceptable to have a woman get up and speak in front of men. But I don't want to do anything uh, that will offend anybody." And it wasn't that I was so comfortable doing it, but they, uh, the rough told me it's a necessity and it, by all means you should do it. So I felt that I should do it. So that's how, that's how it began. And we did it primarily at the beginning. We traveled to outreach organizations such as Eshatora mm-hmm. and Orsome, where the people we were reaching out to were really basically secular Jews. Mm-hmm. And it, each difference to them to to see that women in Orthodox Judaism aren't second class citizens. So a woman getting up and talking for a woman really said it all. You didn't have right. to say much more. Especially I would so, imagine in those days with feminism. I mean, things have changed a lot. And I guess I would ask you, well, two questions really, because your background in Kirov and working with secular people. And I wonder if you think that's changed where now it seems like a lot of the need is almost in reach. And, and you know, like within the community, there's so, such a huge need for inspiration. So, yeah. I, you know, I guess you're, I, I would ask if you- You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Outreach, much harder today to reach out. There isn't that, that tshuva, um, the, the, there was tshuva in the air. It was something that, People felt compelled. They were looking for something. Today, there are very few people who are really like today. It's it's um, college kids. You can really, if you get them at that stage of the game, and you can inspire them. I know a lot of money of people who used to support outreach, and now they uh, they basically want to support only uh, efforts in the, on college campus mm-hmm. because then they're not, they're unaffiliated. They don't have a they're not married, and if you get one of them, then they'll you can get them to go to Israel for to learn for a year. And there, they get inspired. And they can meet somebody from, and and you have a better chance. What do you see as some of the? Because we said you know, like in reach is really so much more of a need now as the from community's gotten so much bigger. So, what do you think some of the things that women are struggling with nowadays are? Uh, it's a, it's an excellent question. You're right that today it's a, it's really more about inreach. Um, our community people are floundering today because the world is technology has done such a number on us. It's a blessing to technology. We wouldn't be talking now if we didn't have technology. But on the other hand, it's so luring and so tempting. Everything that has is such mushrastic stuff, and it's so hard for people to resist. It's uh, it's so much more exciting than uh, you know than studying Torah, we might say, mm-hmm. and uh, and the, those things, especially men with all the all those you know pornography pornography sites and and it's it's a very very difficult world. The Satmar is he's gone already probably forty years. He said that walking down one street in America has more nisionos, more temptations than a lifetime in Europe. Mm. So we live in a world that's suffused with with so much garbage. 
and to be able to resist that. So our the firm communities are, you know, thank God we have Torah mitzvahs, but we're not immune. Mm-hmm. We're not immune. And um, the pressures and and uh, uh, is is so there's so much depression and uh, and so much anxiety and um, it, it just I don't know that there was ever a time when there was so much of that. Every day I get calls, youngsters, young people coming back from seminary, girls, and all of a sudden you know everything looms as so so huge for them they can't they can they can't see their life ahead of them and you know fall into this trap of anxiety and so it's it's difficult life is life is very very difficult and to maintain our equilibrium and i tell my chavra i tell my women don't demand so much of yourself you know if you get through a day you have a house full of kids and you get there, you wake up in the morning, and that's number one. That's a great thing. You wake up in the morning. Then, if you're able to send your children off with a smile, it, you're doing you're doing great already. And and just maintaining a household, and and if one is able to do a happy household to boot, that's a major, major, major achievement. So on top of that, when women say, but what do I do? I remember one of my daughters going to Amish and Rebbe and, and said to him, I'm, I'm only a, a wife and a mother. And he got so upset. He said, only? Being a wife and a mother is only? You attach only to that? That's a huge, huge achievement. But we live in a society that doesn't respect our values. So and if, you, if somebody asks you, what do you do? And you say, I'm a wife and a mother. I'm a homemaker. And they don't, you don't see any admiration in their eyes. But if you say to them, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm this or whatever it is, you know, you get positive feedback. And we all thrive on positive feedback. So to maintain our stance and to remember we can do everything in the world and we are capable of doing anything. We can be uh, anything we want to. But to understand that our priority is our families and to maintain that priority and and in the midst of all this pushback, like you say, mm-hmm. and no positive feedback is very, very, very difficult. And and oh. for our children to know that we are that they're our priority is so important for kids. Mm, right. So smiling, being happy, having a home, having a happy home and keeping our priorities in order. Well, you might've preempted one of the questions I was going to ask you with that answer, but let me just, let me just ramp it up a little bit because we're recording this now. It's right before Rosh Chodesh El and I'll be posting it already when people are listening to this, it will be El. So what are some things that you would suggest that women can do to really take advantage of this time of year? Because I think some people maybe feel a little bit of a dread or they're not doing enough or they're not taking advantage of El or they're nervous about Yamam coming up. So what's your best suggestion for women who are listening to this during El? Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we, we tend to do a number on ourselves and mm-hmm. uh, to find all of the deficiencies. And I think- the, the, What? It's not just me you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> all of us do that and we feel uh, we feel we're not up to par and we're not uh, and maybe the remote doesn't have too much use for us considering uh what we've thought 
what mm -hmm. we've done and whatever. So we do this this number and I say, I think the first thing is to recognize that when we do the things that I, I talked about before, that we're already doing great. And the rebellion is very, very proud of us that we're able to do that and, and the kind of environment and kind of society and culture that we live. So we're already doing okay. If we want to, in addition to that, it, it's always good to ask her to look at our, take some sort of inventory and ask ourselves like, okay, what in the past year um, am I proud of? Things that I achieved, like I'm not talking about monumental things and the scheme of all things, but just like I, I was able to, um, to infuse my house with a little bit more simcha. And, um, and, and that's a, a huge thing. When we have a house that's a happy home, and it is that uh, Karasabais, it's a woman of the house that does this. The mm -hmm. house, Altikroli, Ishti, Ishti, Elabesi. A woman is not only a wife, she's, she's the house. Whatever you walk into a house and you get a sense of the house, you know that it has to do with the woman of the house. Uh, when it's dark and bleak and dismal, and depressing. It has to do with a woman when it's upbeat. Mm -hmm. it, it has to do with the woman. I remember my, my husband, I should live and be well, used to tell me early on, he used to say to me, and we had all these institutions to support, and he would say to me, you know, if I walk in the house and uh, and I haven't made a cent, I haven't raised a dollar for the to support the institutions, but I see that you're in a good mood, he says it to me, it's like I raised a million dollars. And, and if I raise the million dollars, of course, which never happened, but uh, I see that you're downhearted, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean a thing to me. He says, you're, you're the one that sets my mood and it's all dependent on you. And, and I see, Taka, that's what it is. We do it for our husbands. We do it for our children. Women are extremely, extremely powerful. Hmm. When the Gemara says, it, it, it is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. I think that we take inventory now. We see uh, what are the, maybe there's something that I, I want to um, kind of uh, look towards and adapt. Maybe, maybe I haven't been able to, uh, let's say I don't, uh, I haven't been able to say brachas in the morning because I'm so busy with the children. And then of course I want to exercise and I want to do other things. I could take, I could make a Kabbalah. Not that I'm going to go do the whole davening and sit there and shuckle mm -hmm. and, and have Kabbalah. But I can, I can say to start the day off when I can to say Modani and to say the, the brachas and, and kind of focus a little bit on them could make a huge difference. Could make, you know, connecting with the Rabbani Shalala is, is, is a very good thing, but not to set ourselves up for failure by saying, oh yes, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna daven the whole davening and I'm gonna do that, that won't work, it won't last. Mm -hmm. So just something modest, start with something modest and we connect with the Rebunch which is which is a very, very good thing. So it helps us feel grounded and to understand that, you know, the Rebunch is running the show. Right. And okay. that's what it helps us. That's great advice. So first of all, recognizing your power as a woman, taking inventory, making small, modest steps, and connecting to Hashem. That was a little bit of a 
very quick summary. Okay, so I know you have to go and I, I wish I could ask you many, many more questions and spend a lot more time, but maybe what I'll do is, usually I ask the same last question to everybody, but instead maybe we'll just do like a little quick fire round. So you could answer one sentence or you can elaborate whatever you want, but okay. just Rebbitz and Fagy's best advice on a few topics. So number one, marriage. Marriage. Um, I think that it's um, kind of climbing out of our souls and focusing on, on the other person. Actually, okay. your, your grandfather gave me that advice. Yeah. On, on, on the night of the wedding, he pulled me aside and he says, I'm sure you're very nervous about the, uh, being married and all that entails. He says, I'll, I'll tell you, if you stop focusing on yourself and you look at the other person and you look at them, and you understand that they are, they are really struggling with much more than you are. And, and you extend empathy to them and you try to figure out how to how to minimize the stress in their life. That that taking off the pressure off of yourself and stop breathing down your own neck and looking at the other individual is it makes all the difference in the world. And of course, when it comes to our husbands, the biggest thing Rambam says is respect. Mm. To show our, our husbands is where men thrive on respect. So a respect means, you know, uh, looking decent when a husband comes home, mm -hmm. respecting getting off the phone when you hear that they're coming to the house and let them hear you say, um, I'm sorry, I got to go. My husband just walked in. So um, those things are, and of course, uh, intimacy, being mm -hmm. available for intimacy, that really is something that boosts male ego. And they, they need that. Right. But what about a woman who's listening to this and says, my husband doesn't deserve my respect. My husband doesn't act respectable. What do you say to that woman? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, you, you can't, the uh, psychology one-on-one -on -one will tell you that you can't be responsible. You can't be responsible for the uh, behavior of the other. We can only be responsible for ourselves. And no matter what it is, it's the same thing with so many people come in and say, my parents don't deserve my respect. They've never done anything for me. Why should I respect them? The point is that we respect them because uh, the Rebbe told us to. And, and we, have to do, we have to do our thing. And it, sometimes it could be that with the respect that they get from us, they, um, they, they feel better about themselves and, and, and they can shape up. Mm. So we have to do our thing. Uh, we could get help. We could go talk to somebody about it so mm -hmm. that we don't live with resentment and frustration. That's always a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. You have something on your heart, talk to somebody about it. Not mm -hmm. a million people, only one person. Mm -hmm. Somebody who serves as a therapist or a therapist. Mm -hmm. But respect is extremely, extremely important in, in a marriage. Okay, so from the, the marriage advice and then um, the Rebbitson's advice on parenting in either a sentence or like elaborate if you want. But Okay, uh, on uh, parenting, I think uh, parenting, I think that I would say that we catch our our children, this applies to husbands as well, catch our children doing something right, rather than feeling that enough means that I have to criticize and, and that's the way I guide them. Instead, catch them doing something right and comment on it and give them positive feedback 
for it. I think that that builds a child's um, self-esteem and uh, it's very, very important. They'll get enough criticism out there. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> I love that. And would you have a different advice for grandparents on grandparenting? Oh, oh grandparents are really easy. Grandparents, <laughs> you take out the candy and the, the chocolate and you give mm -hmm. them hugs and kisses and, uh, and you can throw in uh, I think that by example of who you are, you uh, you impact uh, grandchildren, children too, but grandchildren. And then if you're loving and you're caring and, and they want to come back and, and, and get more, I think that's, you know, and then when it gets too much, you give them back to the parents. You say they're yours, take them. So grandparents have a very privileged place in, yeah. in the family. It's mostly, it's not this. Yeah, that's amazing. And going back just the beginning, when you talked about your own story and growing up, I guess you're, you and people who grew up in your situation didn't have grandparents. That was something that the Nazis took from a whole generation of people. Yeah, and mostly I did have my father's father perished in the war mm -hmm. and um, his mother did survive. And then my mother's parents, uh, my mother did have parents that came to America. My, my grandfather... And uh, so we did have, we did have grandparents. So. That was that rare? Because even my mother said that she was one of the few friends who had grandparents. Yeah, no, we did have. I, I, I guess it, may, it probably was more rare. Yeah, mm -hmm. but uh, you know that is a deprivation. No question about it. That unconditional love, where parents, grandparents don't feel like they have to be the ones disciplinarians, mm -hmm. and it could be totally and completely love. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful thing for children to have. You'll hear even secular women. I had a group of secular women, and uh, they went. We went around the room, and they and they said, "Yeah, we have a grandma, and we have a bubby." Mm -hmm. They said, "Our grandmas." are people who work outside the home. And if we want to come visit them, we have to make an appointment mm -hmm. uh, because so, they might not be home. Our bubbies, our bubby, we can walk in anytime and our bubbies will have chocolate chip cookie, our favorite chocolate chip cookies waiting for us and our favorite meal, our bubbies. And as they would, were saying this, and these were professional women, the tears were streaming down their face when they talked about their bubbies. And it was different. They weren't crying when they talked about their grandmas. Right. So, uh, yeah, bubbies, bubbies did serve that purpose with that unconditional love and caring. And it's a, yeah, it's a very special gift to have a bubby. Yeah, we should all be Zoha to be the best bubbies. Um, Amen. Yes, and I thank you so much, Auntie Fahey. I really okay. appreciate it. Okay, that's Lacha Rabba and everything you do, Stavi. Amen. Thank you it's so really much. Thank you, thank you. Okay.